Good evening, everyone. Welcome to you all, and thank you all very much for coming. This is part of the library's um, never-ending series of programs and events, The Knockout, After Painting by Joseph Shepard. From canvas to canvas, a study in curves, the arc of a fist of one body moving through another, the other's slow collapse and curl toward darkness, bloodied head a blur of sweat and spit, flying mouthpiece. The referee hovers, arms spread wide, ready to step in, calling time. Seconds leaned in from the corner, mouths an astonished O oh, as the crowd begins to stand, lifted like butterflying feet rising from the mat, circling awe-filled students of the beauty of one swift and feral stroke. Since January 2000, Beltway Poetry Quarterly has published poetry by authors who live or work in the capital of the United States, Washington, D.C., and every now and then they let in interlopers like myself. Um, that poem that I read was a part of their museum uh, issue um, last year or two years ago, um, although I do have sort of a tangential connection to D.C. I went to library school there, and my father was born there, but Anyway, I'm a Baltimore person, but in any case. The amazing Kim Roberts has edited uh, two to three issues a year since uh, 2000 and 10 years in the life of any type of uh, organization, but particularly a literary organization, is truly amazing and uh, wonderful and should be celebrated, and so that is why we're here. The anthology, Kim Roberts, bless you. Thank you so much for the anthology, and thank you for bringing these poets together. So, Kim. Thank you all for coming. Now let me just say a few words about the anthology and the, the process of the anthology. There are 101 poems in the anthology um, because I'm really bad at math. Um, my uh, publisher said 100 poems and I overshot. Um, and I was amazed at how quickly I got to 100 poems. Um, what I did was um, I, we decided it would be contemporary poems, and so then I had to sort of make parameters for that. So 1950 seemed like a good round number to start at, and so um, it's poems written between 1950 and the present. And I wanted to make sure that I represented each decade um, equally so that it, we weren't, wouldn't be all sort of uh, backloaded in the anthology with you know a few forebears and then... Uh, you know, all contemporary poets. So even with some of the poets who are still writing actively, I sometimes chose older poems to represent the time when they were most actively involved in D.C. The poems are arranged chronologically by the year that the poets were born. And I thought that uh, I was going to get many, many more hassles from people about giving me the, the year that they were born uh, but um, actually, uh, people, for the most part, were very gracious about giving me this very personal information. So um, uh, the very first person in the book was actually born in 1899, and that's because Mae Miller was uh, actively writing until the very end of her life. Um, she, she lived for a very long time. So her lifetime, her writing lifetime, spanned from the Harlem Renaissance when she was mostly known as a playwright, all the way up to, um, oh, what year did she die? Yeah, it was, yeah, because she was, she was writing right up to the end. She died in 1995. Um, a very long, fruitful life. And I love that she's the, the very first poet in the book. Um, the very last poems, uh, a couple of poems in the book, are by writers who are in their uh, 20s and who are really just starting out in their writing career. So there's a nice span there. And, you know, I was juggling a lot of things. I wanted to get the full time span, but I also wanted to get a sort of geographic mix and make sure that I was covering different aspects of, um, you know, really a, a, a true portrait of the city and not just downtown or monuments or I wanted it to be half men and half women didn't quite get there there are a few more men than women I wanted it to be um, a mix of um, different races and ethnicities anyway so it was a lot of sort of trying to, to uh, balance many many different things um, 
there were some lovely interactions I had with next of kin of um, poets who have passed um, who were really pleased to have their loved ones in the anthology. The title is actually a wonderful poem in the book by Miles David Moore of the same name, Full Moon on K Street. As I was looking for a title, that one sort of stood out because I think it gets at the complexity of feelings. You know, K Street, our, our associations are so overwhelmingly negative with K Street, but Full Moon is so romantic that um, it was a nice sort of balance there. Uh, we have a lineup of some of the authors who appear in the uh, anthology of uh, poems from Beltway, Full Moon on K Street, poems about Washington, D.C. It is a great pleasure to have some uh, of the, as I said, some of the people who, uh, some of the poets who are represented in there, uh, Merle Leffler, Daniel Gutstein, Tina Dara, thank you, and um, in case you saw me genuflect here, the amazing Grace Cavalieri of the poet and the poem. Bless you for your, for speaking of longevity and wonderful work that you do. 33 years on the radio? Magnificent. In any case, we did care to come here to read and listen to some poetry, so um, let us start. Oh, I'll, I'll go backwards. Let's start with Mr. Leffler, Merle Leffler. I was telling a couple of people here that the last time I was in the Poe Room was in 1967 when I was in a, yo a young man, when I would have been at the back of this book. Right now I'm near the front since, Grace, since Kim has organized this by dates of birth, and not only by dates of birth, but in about 24-point type. But at any rate, uh, a friend of mine, Neil Lehrman, and I started a poetry magazine called Dryad uh, in 1967, and I sent a copy to Richard Hart, who was the director of the humanities uh, department here at uh, Enoch Pratt, and he was a marvelously generous man. He invited us to come here. He had made big posters, from, uh, of, uh, had posters made of some of the poems, and was just very encouraging to... Uh, two guys who didn't know what they were doing. Um, you know, you've mentioned, of course, Kim, who has edited this book, and uh, she has been indefatigable uh, in Beltway for you know, 10 years, and she's also in, had guest editors. I'm you know, happy to say that I was one of them, and then has also been honoring uh, poets who um, have lived in Washington, worked in Washington, who have passed away, who have died. And... Um, and a num you know, number of us have written essays about these, appreciative essay you know, critical appreciative essays. Um, so I want to start by reading a poem by one of those uh, poets, uh, and that is uh, a man who some of you may know of, Obi Hardison. He was the director of the Shakespeare, uh, Folger Shakespeare Library. And that's how people knew him. They knew him as a Shakespearean scholar, uh, as a man of you know, really capacious learning. He was interested in science and the arts and um, I think was an extraordinary man. But he was also a poet, not just um, uh, you know, a scholar writing poetry, uh, but he was a poet who was doing s scholarly work. And, but his work wasn't all that well known and I knew very few of his poems. So when uh, Kim asked if I would write a piece about him, I was very happy to, and I just... I really, I unequivocally just love some of his work. Um, so I'm going to read one of the poem that's here. It's called Pro Musica Antiqua. And uh, it's after a performance at the Kennedy Center, which was in the, in the mid-70s. Listen to the music. Listen to the sound of the Krumhorn, the Rebeck, the, uh, the Viel, the Virginal, the Viola da Gamba, the scraping and twanging celebration of order. It is all in the best possible order. It streams up through the air of your house, and it is like summer, a kind of sunlight slanting through the dust of almost empty air. Throw away the dictionary. Live where you are. Sounds very Buddhist, right? If the sackbut pulls, bang on the piano fort, limber up the drums, unleash saxophones, let everything run wild. Have voices too, whole masses of voices, doing the nibungli by ear. This is the way it should be. Your house should be music. Welcome it. Hold on to it. Sweat. Let it pour into you, like an old god making demigods with mortals. Hold on until your every motion is dance. Having received in large, when you let go, you will snore in C major.
So this is a small poem of, of uh, Obi Hardison's. There are some really wonderful narrative poems, and he had a gr- terrific wit. Kim has asked us, of course, to read a poem of ours that, that you know that's in the anthology, and you know. Um, so I'm going to read a poem that's in the anthology. It's called "Morning, Early Summer." It's not set in D.C., but it's. I live in an edge city, and that's Tacoma Park. In fact, part of Tacoma Park is in D.C. The, the metro, if those of you are familiar, the metro is in the D.C. part of uh, Tacoma. Um, although people who live in D.C. might say that Tacoma Park is <laughs> the other side of D.C. So this is called Morning Early Summer. I could have had you know, morning early summer in Tacoma Park. but It's not that I love this early morning light that begins its glimmer between these close houses any more than I do the high, bright, glare of noon or the sun's last light that drowns in swales of orange over the farthest edges of the city. It is only that here in the momentary silence before the glimmering stepped fully out from the borders of darkness, the rooms filled with silence, palpable, your body in sleep upstairs, the birds not yet claiming their territory. I am breathing beneath the earth's dark skin tuned to all the invisible respiration chugging like engines out in the backyard. Full, complete, at no odds with the darkness there or with the constant feeling of feeding, I'm sorry, or with the constant feeding and being fed upon. A calm, every need quiescent, still, ready for whatever, whatever will come and however and the heat that will soon lay down its steamy paws over each and everything living and dead. So this is out in the backyard here. That's um, in our edge city. So I'm going to read maybe four or five poems to you. And, um, and you know, it would be nice to read city poems because we're in Baltimore. So I don't, I don't know if I can call them up here. But... Um, I, I want to read a poem called the uh, the Maw of Art. You know, it's it's. I've often heard poets say that um, you're allotted one or two poems to write about poetry, but um, I'm not sure I believe that. that, that um, maybe it's a rationalization because a lot of the poems that I write are about writing. After all, uh, it's we live in a self-conscious age, and um, so many of them have you know have to not have to do with writing, but that self-consciousness comes in. So this is called the Maw of Art. And it goes like this. There is, there is uh, an epigraph, as there are in many of these poems. I see it as a kind of conversation that I've been having my whole life with, uh, you know, not just with poets, but with writers and thinkers. So the epigraph is from Herman Melville. I saw the opening maw of hell. The maw of art feeds and feeds and feeds. Insatiable. The sun's fiery setting. Black night, you name it, turkey vulture, hummingbird, cheeps on a winter branch where late the Swede birds, yes, on a balcony now, Rockville Pike, Hard Scrabble Mountain, wherever you are, come and see the maw of art at work. On its knees now before a piece of green glass, forlorn, the bloody afterbirth, the spider's silken palace, rivers moving ever and ever, the imperishable dead passing, these arias of art, singeth the maw, maw of art. Carry them in your arms. They would live in your heart forever. Okay, this is uh, a little poem called Morning Takes. You know, I just said something about um, your poets being allotted, presumably a few poems about the art of writing. Well, a lot of the poems that we read often are about memory, um, in which we make epiphanies out of memory poems. I sometimes wrestle with all of that, and um, so this poem, I think, partly comes out of that. It's called Morning Takes. I will serve up nothing for M this morning, says memory. You're on your own, pal. Find your poem somewhere else today. I'm tired of serving up tales as though I were a machine for grinding out epiphanies. Go reach beyond the borders of recall. Listen to the birds pitching their cheeps into the morning air and scooting about like sex-crazed rascals. Make something of them, why don't you? Leave me alone. Let the past slay fallow for seven years, at least. X calls distraught. 
Her husband, Y, has been fucking Z for years, and she just found out. Ten years, M, says X. Incredulity. Amazement. Wonder. My enemy, X says in disbelief. When did they do it? Where? Why would he want to? And with her? Despair. Grief. Anger. Disdain. The dark side of living, says M to himself. The eternal themes, infidelity and surprise. How did I get here, cries X. Who am I? What am I to do? Her sentences scoot from one perch to the next, then are off again like the winds. How can you be shocked, asks M. You haven't slept in the same bed for years. You are not coming in, cries X. Do you read me? You are not coming in. The sky through the leafing trees back here has begun to brighten. The squawks and cheeps are up and pitching about from one branch to the next, alighting, then aloft, and off again. Hey-ho, they shout. Hunger time. Let's get over to M. Sill. A sweet bowl of sunflower seeds awaits. Yum. Okay, this is a poem called Rain. For two nights and one long day, the rains have not stopped. They have drenched the earth, have made a sponge of it, have left the foliage leaden with wet leaves adrift and capsizing, this back field, an ocean of rudderless skiffs. You can feel your own self dragged under and down, struggling to pull yourself up, and still through this rising flood, what manner of birds sounding their recalls through the sopping rain? Neither the heartbreak nor heart's love in them, nor promise, nor grief, nor courage, nor giving up. And here you are, emptied out over love, its loosening, its drift and departure. Of course they are singing, whatever we need them to sing. Resist, hold out, this too will pass, we will forage again, we will feed our young. Listen to these choruses of no expectation, with their empty syllables echoing yours. If the, sun, if the sun stays dark today, it will break through tomorrow or the day after. It does not matter. Your body, for some unaccountable reason, rises on these notes like a well-made boat, riding the cliff of storm-driven waves that would drag you under for good. And yet you ride their lift with no expectation. Just trust. All that they are is all that they are. And that is enough. I'm going to read one more poem, and it's, um, it's made up of several pieces, uh, so I'll just pause. I'm not going to number them, and I've called it a sweep. For... My wife says you should take better care of your feet. Look at those poor damaged dogs, hammer toes, bunions, corns, neuromas. Ugh, what neglect and inattention they have suffered. Think of the, of the abuse they have carried you through running up and down courts, climbing mountain after mountain of despair, and then descending deeply into the valley after valley of the same. The least you could do is give them the care that they so richly deserve, warm baths to begin with, unguents, soothing creams, and a loving woman, honey on her tongue, to lay next to. Two. I'm sorry. I'd like to help, but I'm not going to keep your feet warm go buy a pair of woolen socks. And the last part. And what I know of Rabbi Weiss of Bilka, though it would not fill a shot glass, is this. To study Talmud late into the night, he'd stick his feet in ice water and keep them there, it was said, to ward off sleep from spreading through his body. I have it on no authority, of course, but I would like to think it was his way to not forget his body while his soul set forth into the thick wilderness of God's love. O Rabbi Weiss of Bilka, not even a smudge in my memory, not a pinprick in the history of the dead. I can imagine you at Matisse's table, the light holding you in place, dining on the sweet breath of life, old men wringing from each hour the honey that flows like fire in the blood. Rabbi Weiss of Bilka, for God's sake, who knows how you might have forsaken your wife for study, or for that matter, how you came to her in dark passion, your appetite for wisdom, like Solomon's, so full you met each other with gratitude and love. O oh, Rabbi Weiss of Bilka, I drink to the memory of your feet, 
may they live in incandescence to light even the darkest way. So thank you. Um, Kim did ask us to read one poem from you know, somebody else in this collection. There's a lot of fine poems here, so it was kind of hard to choose. Um, I took a guy I've never known before I read this collection named Alan Spears, born 1964. It's amazing what you get used to. I call them morons, a group of guys, most likely young, stupid-ass brothers, that have been driving by the neighborhood the last few nights shooting up the abandoned gas station on the corner. I've never seen them, but I know their work by the fury of their assault and the sound of screeching car tires as they speed away. What's worse than the bullets is the dead silence afterwards. No cops, no sirens wailing to the rescue. No neighbors stepping out to consult with one another in hushed, worried tones. Nothing. When the morons struck this morning, they roused me from a sound sleep. It took a few seconds to realize they were at it again. As the closer we get to summer... The more folks around here break out leftover firecrackers and M80s, but these were bullets, and before I could catch myself in a moment of soporific optimism, I reached over to adjust the wicker partition that serves as my curtain, a pathetic just-in-case to protect against stray bullets. The shots rang, the tires screeched, and then nothing all over again. I lay there in the humid silence, thinking about all the other people in the neighborhood, angry, afraid, and muted, just like me. After a few minutes, I rolled out of bed and went downstairs for a glass of water, D.C. tap. It tasted a lot less like lead than usual, for which I was truly grateful. So that's Alan Spears, born 1964. And I guess we're reading our own poems. So this is mine, the least variations, and then I'll read a couple of other things and get out of the way for the next person. Um, the least variations. In the licorice chew of girl's reflection, rainy window on commuter rail at dayfall, wet street perpendicular to the nowhere of street lamp's sickly hood, beat of wet wind, beat of strobes guiding aircraft toward Baltimore, Washington, in the shoulder to shoulder of traveler valise missing your pretty teeth, I could anger simply or collapse, cuss of transmission wire, slush of underpass. Time is a grid of latitudes and darkenings. Time is a grid of plurals. Light fails on double-file track. Scrawny spray paint dis, leaner against standpipe fails, buddies and half-cammy slouch, billboard platitude. World of haste fails, twisty scrapyard, elbow of steam shovel, bio engine of archway fails, neon powerball total, revivitization or momentum fails, signal and switchbox and torque, spasm of brake and guzz of electrics. What arrives is shoe dank, shoe dank. What is Mass Ave and Third Street? Union Station's dome of exhaust, little and less, soul, scuff, what is percussion. Hashes a scoop of cranberry, a scoop of taters, a scoop of stuffing outside public kitchen, a mimic thrasher, catbird, building a nest and nestling atop crown of flickery signage, eats in the measure of its eye, its rustic housecoat missing, the weather of your wit, kind instrument of your variance. I kindle the closet bulb, throw an arm of your nightgown around a shirt collar, tipsy fond, garments on their hangers renewing the likes of our bodies. Time is a grid of latitudes. This next little piece is a book of, this is a book of prose, but it's a complicated little book. It's prose shorts and prose poems and stories and I don't know what to call it. But uh, 16th Street, Washington, D.C., my neighbor, uh, Mr. Boswell, uh, who had been in, in, his, in his life a, a, a diplomat in Liberia. Um, and this piece is called Glass of the Moon. Mr. B came home to find a bullet hole in the bottom right square of the window. It had clipped the globe cover over the light bulb. The bullet did, sent half to the kitchen floor where its shards almost twinkled, its shards like glass rind. 
The bullet had then pocked the ceiling, a pucker there, and ricocheted with an old spaghetti western sound effect into the wide open cupboard where it fizzled the bullet like a coin dropped into a teacup. Mr. B pulled the string to the light bulb, his cough a sheet of paper torn in half into quarters, eighths, sixteenths. The bulb and its cover played a jagged edge on his cheek. Mr. B had just returned from the doctor. He tucked his gloves into the hand pockets of his tall gray overcoat, his somber hat into the breast pocket. Mr. B had just hung his tall gray overcoat on the hook when a flurry of noise in the kitchen startled him. Hello, he called, hands wringing his scarf. Hello? Hello. It sounded as if a glass had broken twice, a comical ricochet from an old spaghetti western. It sounded as if a coin had dropped into a teacup, then tense quiet, the tense quiet of the examination room after the doctor had grimaced. So Mr. B advanced on the kitchen. He saw the globe cover first, the bottom right square of the window, the ceiling pucker. He found a bullet in a teacup in the wide open cupboard, his hands still wringing the scarf. Mr. B stood at the kitchen a long time. The brook-like noise of the faucet enabled him to reflect aloud, glass of the light bulb cover, glass of the moon. The doctor had said cough. The doctor had said breathe, the cold of the stethoscope, cold of the bullet in his fist. Mr. B set the tea kettle on the stove. He said, news been better. I'd have walked home swifter. I'd have hung my coat faster. I'd have run the faucet quicker. I'd have been here at that angle. I wouldn't have heard nothing. But the news was cough, breathe, it was grimace, tense quiet. Mr. B waited for the water to boil, stepped around glass rind on the floor, tea leaves, honey, lemon. He sipped the drink on his dusty couch and with a chill that may have felt terminal, dialed three numbers on his rotary phone. We're in Baltimore, so I'm going to do a little Baltimore right now. I'm from D.C., but... I actually work here at Micah. I'm going to do a little bit of Baltimore, and then I'll get out of the way for the next person. St. Paul in North Ave. St. Paul in North Ave. There is never, and there is in between. Why do people perpetuate autumn? Checker cabs are yellow, and yellow cabs are orange, while stars foreclose on the salty automobile traffic. The dirty fuels combust. Rooftops impoverish the enamel of a cloud field there, the stain of the eye upon the stain of the cheek. Cut the noise, she says. You look like the bottom of my shoe. There is libel and there is liability. A live sally or savvy, the freight of a puncher's arms. Free bird. <laughs> Happy holidays, Nuncle. The KO pop, the canvas pop. That's why the boxer die. You're West Baltimore. Make your thrifty face. Biosis, percussion, bio percussive. Constellation, buster in the north sky, in the north. Leaves because human, because stricken to exhaust. No more secrets in the woods. No more woods. Imagine the bruise. And the last piece, North Howard and West 24th. Windows that look north into windows that look south, a loop of aircraft above the acute slope of an historic rooftop. Her toes, his shoulder blades, her fingers, his calves. Day two, there. Day three, there. Birds color the leaftops of thirsty trees. So strikes up a chainsaw orchestra. So coil the slender necks of wax flowers. Even oblivion can be structural. Let the elements assemble. Let grief turn like an element from its assembly. That's how I'll leave it. Thank you. My name's Tina Dara. I've been around Washington, D.C. since 68. And uh, uh, one of the things that I love about this uh, anthology is that it doesn't, to, 
to me, it doesn't have that um, back in the day feel to it. It's it's very, it's it just feels very present. It's in the present tense. And um, even though there's there's so many people in it who um, that when I first when I first started writing, we went to um, it, uh, this, it was a community bookstore. That was the name of a community bookstore, and there was a, a room upstairs that they let us use once a week, and. It was it was just a, this wonderful. We were all sitting on the floor, and um, a, a very diverse group of people, um, young and old, um, uh, diversity of uh, race and class and educational background, and um, and you know. So there I was. I was what twenty two or whatever it was, and I thought this is what it's like to be an adult. You know, like you're in you're in this room with all these people, and and, and their works were all so different, and and so, it, you know, that's what I and that's the feeling I have from this anthology too. So, um, so when when Kim asked us uh, to read uh, another poem um, from the anthology, uh, and you know, there I couldn't pick any any one. I couldn't single out any one of my friends who were in here, and I I probably wouldn't do it justice, but. What I thought I would do would be read um, uh, what Maureen Thorson has in here. Maureen is um, one of the younger poets in D.C., and she she works, um, she organizes one of the reading series there, the D.C.A.C. series. Um, and uh, she writes very, uh, you know, sort of in-your-face uh, poetry. And so when when I first read this K Street interview um, poem, I, I really got a kick out of it. I was laughing and stuff. And then the... Um, uh, then the mining disaster in West Virginia happened, and uh, uh, I was one of the, another poet sent me um, a link to uh, the president of the United Mine Workers. Cecil Roberts has a uh, there's some a couple of videos on YouTube uh, of him speaking about the uh, the mining disaster and how you know things have not changed in West Virginia since uh you know the original Rockefeller time you know they they still own the state and they can do anything they want with the people there and it gave this it gave this poem an entire different different feel to it so this is Maureen Thorson K Street interview do you know do you know do you know John D Rockefeller the 4th America's favorite son descendant of a bigamist snake oil salesman and you know what that makes him? A slick son of a bitch who doesn't mind who he fucks over. Oh, John D., you're a senator, and so near to oil, so near to coal. And oh, the men who interview me defend guys like you. They wear dark, dull suits, these K Street types, the kind that would make Randall Gerald do a double take to see that nothing had changed since he wandered around at the zoo complaining to the buffalo. These men... They've got shoulders like the hills of your constituent state, and we know there's gold, black gold, and them their hills. And today, I've come for my share, that combustible honey. It'll come dark and sweet right over my mouth. I'm going to cover these guys in petroleum, so move over, John D. The octopus is back. So I'm, I didn't do that ju- I didn't, really didn't do that justice. I mean, Maureen, is, Maureen can really... She she can do an in-your-face poem really well. So anyway, so the other thing I'll read is is what I have in here. It's um, uh, called Cliché is P- Place, Rainbows, and it's from a project called Pie in the Sky. It's the third part of that. The um, the first part goes over, uh, uh, there was a, a British writer, Alan Fisher, who did uh, some research on the underground rivers in London and how language developed uh, along those flows. And so I tried to do a project uh, with that and um, try and find cl- um, people's cliché sounds. Um, and uh, it, it was not successful. And so I got to uh, the place where I decided that um, what I would write about would be uh, how I was wrong about something, the error-tracking subject. And this is uh, the first example of that that I've done. Cliché is place, rainbows. The step-by-step process of looking to rainbows as a place for pie in the sky started a while ago when reading Eye and Brain, the author tells the story of Sir Isaac Newton pretending to see orange and indigo in the first color spectrum he made so he could list seven colors, a lucky number, 
And this made me feel very fond of science, given that I myself stretch things a lot to make them fit. So I started to wonder about my other associations with rainbow. For example, the rainbow tribe, Josephine Baker being one of my idols for adopting a baby of every color. But in reading her autobiography, I discovered some facts I hadn't known, that she'd stretched things beyond her limits, originally deciding with her husband on four babies she'd compulsively bring home more, eventually adding up to 12, the number of the tribes of Israel. And, and this numerical coincidence calmed her down a bit, but by then all the money she made was never enough, and she and her husband separated, and eventually she lost her place, and, and she had to move her tribe to a tiny Paris apartment from which she attempted a comeback. And I still greatly admire her, but this new information didn't fit my image of her as the perfect international mother. At this point, I was reminded of Jean Toomer, Having read his book, Cain, I'd assigned him a role as my literary patron saint to go along with St. Martin de Porres, for whom I was named both mulattoes who felt they had all the colors of the world's races in their blood, and Cain, written by Toomer, going from the country, Georgia, to the city, D.C., as I had come from the country, Pennsylvania, to the city, D.C., reading his book, In This City, D.C., where many scenes take place, people of mixed heritage feeling at home as if all their colors combined to make the omnipresent white of the government buildings, the construction atop, the inner life surfacing here. But Toomer left the line between Georgia and D.C. and never wrote a book like Cain again. Instead, he turned to promulgating religion through overlong works in which he tries to tie everything together, the only link with his past being the sound of, repeated sound of Marjorie, Marjorie, the name of both his wives, a form of Margaret, meaning pearl, and this brought me back to one of my original questions about sounds and geography, and I wondered about sounds in the rainbow. And looking it up in the rainbow book, I found that, yes, a physicist, Hermann von Helmholtz, had once amused himself by comparing the colors of the rainbow directly with the notes of the diatonic scale, visible light occupying approximately one octave in the long keyboard of the electromagnetic spectrum. But of course, the editor uses the word approximately. And like the discussions of a lot of other relationships to rainbows in this book, I think he's stretching things a bit because people have always used rainbows for whatever they wanted them to be. The Hebrews saw rainbows as a symbol of God's favor, while the Greeks saw them as harbingers of war and turbulence, and the Zulus thought they were serpents who'd suck up children and cattle, which turned me to the rainbow itself. One of the many atmospheric optical phenomena like the halo of 22 degrees, the sun dog, the corona, etc. All the result of water or ice falling through the sky with random orientations illuminated from behind by strong white light. And what I hadn't understood before is that a rainbow exists more as a direction than as a location and that I must be standing at a certain angle, the anti-solar point, in order to see it and that conditions exist for seeing some sort of rainbow 24 hours a day. For example, last week, we got back a roll of film with pictures of uh, my husband and son building blocks, and in one shot, there's a small arc of light to the right of their building. And I'm not sure exactly what to call it or how it happened, but I do feel extremely lucky to have been looking there from the right angle to that place at that time. So thank you very much. I'm going to begin reading um, the poem that I have in this anthology, and it's um, called Mapping D.C. In 1966, uh, my husband and I moved from the West Coast to D.C. I was a young Navy wife with four children under five years old or under six years old. And the poem is mostly about the, um, that complicated feeling of moving to a new place where you don't know anyone and also the amazement of this, the culture of the city. Mapping DC, 1966. Walking out into the sun, we were coming closer to the world of Washington DC. We were passengers being carried along, wearing a new identity, coming home to what would become home in 1966. Passing through the locks, hauling what? Only the rules of the road. Witnessing the weather of what had burned away, that was half the time. The other half was seeking new construction ahead. 
What was there to see across the water if our true nature was inside us, if the inner city was inside us? It started with a sound, the sound of rats' feet scuttling across the sagging buildings at the end of Key Bridge, where water touches shore with Washington, D.C. Then all was silent as chrome as the buildings rose. 1966, looking back across the river, nothing was rising higher than the dirt. No tall buildings either side in the beginning, just the sound of water and traffic on the bridge. Where did the earth go? Into Sterling Brown's voice. Where did the earth go? Into the whine of the guitar of Bill Harris at the Pigfoot Club. From the high point of the bridge, where did the earth go? But into the sky, into myth and legend, into voices asking to be let out of the jar, all the voices, black, white, Latin, Asian, coming to the shore across the Potomac. 2007 now, this is the end of the past with its sources and methods. Voices are creating a new city. Voices of breath, the breathing left on the map of ourselves, still to be heard as we sailed from the wilderness into our beginnings. Robert Sargent uh, was a friend of mine. He's in the anthology. He and I met for lunch every Wednesday for 20 years. And uh, he died not long ago, 2006, at age 94. And this is a tiny poem of his in the anthology because he was such a perfectly Washington person. 18th and K, Northwest. Over this parking lot, say 50 feet straight up, I used to couch for questions. No good answers, I recall. Old problem days. And now below, I'm parked and older. The building is gone for sure, and the doctor is dead. What's, what's left is only in me. If all those words had worked, things might have gone differently. That was his psychiatrist. I'm going to read one by Kwame Alexander. I told him I would. He's one of the young ones. Look, he's way in the back. <laughs> it's called A Poet Walks Into a Bookstore on U Street, circa 2008. She tells me they only sell books about social justice, and peace and that mine are mostly about love and relationships, which they don't promote. I asked her if she thought changing the world by herself was such a good idea, and how could you ever be free without someone to hold? I wonder how many revolutions started with a kiss, how many communists Neruda made love to, how free it must feel to walk through life. It's Kwame. He's on his way to Italy with a bunch of poets in a villa. He's an entrepreneur say the least. I'm going to read a couple um, new ones from my new book. And um, the first one is about Robert Sargent, who died. And um, the thing about Kim's book is that it does honor many of our Washington poets who have gone. And this is a poem to Robert. It's called Equipoise. Today I tripped and dropped the cake outside your window, spreading the grass with whipped cream for, for sparrows to eat. My hands were emptied of pleasure, but I went inside. You were dressed for company, a bright blue shirt to match your eyes. She's here, the helper shouts, and your blind eyes see, just as almost deaf, you can always hear me. Today, I tell you to go on with your writing. Although 94 and knocked back by stroke, I ask your process. Poetry, you say, but how can you write? You say you hold a pencil, do a line, then have it read back to you. You think you can manage. Family secrets, I whisper. A good idea for a poem. I lean in as we did every week over lunch. I repeat the story you told me 30 years ago. You lower your voice then to tell me how your mother was found sleeping with your uncle. Today I make you enter the house of memory. And who found her, I ask? Winifred, my little sister. I wanted to know who else was told, what your mother said, why your mother's other sister helped her out, loaned a room in the house, adultery. We talk about adultery. 
how you put false information in your journal for your wife to find. Your eyes are cloudy, yet you look straight in my face. It says we've been through a lot. Stories told each other over the years, our friendship a fragile line. We walked and never fell off. Once I said you did not express enough appreciation. Today I say I love you, and you say thank you, thank you. You say it five times in an hour. The line sweeps back, holds us in, correcting its curve. There is nothing we do not know. I avoid painful subjects. I close the door, stepping over the sweet confection, melting in the sun. And another one who has died, and someone we love very much, Hilary Tom, is in Kim's anthology. And so here is a poem to Hilary Tom. It's called In the Attic. I am writing here. Hillary is correcting my poem. I liked it the way it was, vivid with reds and yellows. Too bright, she says, retreating back into the shadows. I begin again. This time I describe the plain, pine, box they buried her in. She sweeps a blue scarf over my eyes, the color of bluebirds on Chinese New Year. Hillary wants only the truth from the poem, and I, so lost, cannot find it. She shows me brown chocolates, from Florence, a gray silk shawl from Rome, a well in Lucca where a young girl drowned in despair. She holds image after image reaching out to me. I am crying while I write. She smiles, find the truth, your breath is like snow on the page. Now I go to the orange trees transplanted across the river Huey, the river of death, where it is said the same fruit thrives on both sides. Hillary comes closer. I can tell she likes this one. Go on, she says. I talk about my husband, the sketchbook she gave him when he could no longer sculpt. My daughters she put in her poems. She smiles. We are getting closer. I come up with just one line from the Bible. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger announcing the green of memory. She thinks I'm ready to begin. And I treasure the poets you have kept for us in this book. Um, I'm going to read two more. One is Another City Very Far Away, Very Far Away in Time and in Place. It's called Tomato Pies, 25 Cents. Tomato pies are what we called them those days before pizza came in at my grandmother's restaurant in Trenton, New Jersey. My grandfather is rolling meatballs in the back. He studied to be a priest in Sicily, but saved his sister Maggie from marrying a bad guy by coming to America. Uncle Joey is rolling dough and spooning sauce. Uncle Joey is always scrubbed clean, sobered up in a white starch shirt after cops delivered him home just hours before. The waitresses are helping themselves to handfuls of cash out of the drawer, playing the numbers with Moon Mullen and Shad, sent in from Broad Street, 1942. Tomato pies with cheese, 25 cents. With anchovies large, 50 cents. A whole dinner is 60 cents before 6 p.m. How the soldiers bust in from Fort Dix would stand outside all the way down Warren Street, waiting for this new taste treat. Young guys in uniform, lined up and laughing, learning Italian before being shipped out to fight the last great war. Thank you, Kim. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. And I'm going to... Um, I'm going to start with the, my poem that's in the anthology. This is called The Stroll. Remember Logan Circle before the Whole Foods and Studio Theater took up residence with their neon and gleam, when it was impossible to hail a cab, and after the party at your friend's group house, you gave up and walked home. Friday night, 3 a.m., up 15th, cars snaking across Mass Ave, the girls in bikini tops, hot pink, hot pants, and perhaps if it was cold, tight, tiny, 
fake fur jackets over swimwear and lingerie, the parade of lucite heels, the lavender-shadowed eyes, cherry-smashed lips, torsos leaning into car windows, selling simultaneously from the front and the back, the stroll in its glory days. To me, it seemed a carnival, an endless celebration, this parade of peaches and destinies and cocos and desirees. And um, we just had the Porter Colloquium at, at Howard University, which um, honors uh, black artists, and Renee Cox, the photographer, was there. She said, well, you know, where are the prostitutes in D.C.? You know, I've been driving around, and I haven't seen any prostitutes. And we were like, oh, well, you know, they used to be on 13th and Mass, but then they cleaned up Logan Circle, so they moved. So anyway, it was this discussion about where to find prostitutes in the city. I want to read, um, did, it, did anyone read Gaston Neal's poem? Okay, great. Gaston was one of the first poets that I met um, when I came to Washington. And he and his wife, Jewel, would have me over their house. And um, there was this thing called the Listening Club. I think that's the official name of it. It was the Listening Group. And it was a whole bunch of black men who would get together and listen to jazz records, and no women were allowed. And Amiri Baraka was um, in town, and so he was, you know, the, the special guest at the listening group. I really wanted to be there, and Jewel said, "Well, if you help in the kitchen, then you." Can. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not making this up at all. <laughs> so um, I helped in the kitchen so that I could uh, meet Amiri Baraka and, and sit. And then when it was all over, like Amiri and Gaston, and I can't remember his name. I think he's a trombone player, well-known jazz musician, and. And me, we got to sit in the living room, so I was hanging out with the guys. And this poem by Gaston is uh, actually titled Sterling Brown. So it's a D.C. poet paying homage to another D.C. poet. And he references uh, Brown's famous poem, Strong Men. Sterling Brown by Gaston Neal. I've clung to telephone booths in laughter, taken your hand in a park, and drank black whiskey, heard you cry and bemoan the young black bucks, shouting a blackness you knew as brown. Saw you dance the words, mesmerize the creation, talk a poem as a human is, and do a tale beyond the Remus show. I have seen the green hospital walls, refusing, uncaring about the nightmares, refusing, uncaring, changing sheets, serving meals, devouring strong men. I have seen the green hospital walls. I have seen the strong man caressing tenderness. I have seen the strong man building the indestructible network of an embracing love. I have seen the strong man bearing white-hot pain, spilling tears on fire. I have seen the strong man go to the telephone booth and laugh and laugh and laugh. Gaston Neal. So I'm just going to do uh, two poems of my own, two more to, to finish. Um, this poem, uh, I haven't read this poem out loud. It's actually a performance piece, I think, but it's still in progress. And um, I quote, two or three lines from Hafiz. So you'll hear that in there. I want to be the one who lives with a full moon in each eye, Hafiz. The woman who says, I love you silently, as the poets would desire to answer simply the longing in each pair of eyes my eyes meet. You are loved, you are loved, you are here and you are loved. Be here. Here, this moment, this place, this now. Not in the cinematic escape hatch your mind would have you believe is the source of life. Half flickering in darkness while you sit mesmerized by images of things you'll never possess. Not in the bomb shelter inside the shell of your skin, battle scarred and weary, running low on ammunition. Soldier, 
You can't fight this war alone. Besides, don't you know the armistice was signed years ago? But only you can declare peace and end the war between your heart and your mind. Arma stadium modus vivendi. Lay down your arms. This is no way to live. Move. There is a light seed grain inside. You fill it with yourself or it dies. Rumi. The war in your heart has ended. Say yes to this moment, this here, this now. And my final piece is a poem about DC, and it's a call and response. So you have to respond. And your line is in the district. And you have to say it in rhythm. You have to go in the district. So I'm going to. I do this with my hand, and you go, in the district. Let's try that one more time. In the district. All right, much better. Here we go. In the district. Mumbo sauce, half smokes, the 70 bus. In the district. Nico's tapes, traffic circles, go-go beats. In the district. The mug and mangoes, compliment man, mayor for life. President Obama, Rayful Edmonds, Jerry Blossom. Junkyard and backyard and we are monuments in Marvin Gaye, Langston Hughes and Sterling Brown. Taxation without representation, condos and gentrification, building height maximums, minimum wages all. In the district. Duke Ellington, Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington, Duke Ellington, Duke Ellington. Cool Disco Dan. In the district. Thank you. Okay, I'm Arani of the Poets. We're, we are doing um, readings throughout 2010 from the anthology. I'm trying to... Um, uh, include as many people in the readings as possible, so I'm trying not to, where possible, repeat readers. So every single reading is different. The full schedule for the readings is online. Um, if you go to beltwaypoetry.com, uh, on the masthead there's something that says 10th anniversary. Uh, if you click on that, that has the schedule of readings. It also connects you up to um, reviews uh, of the book and... Um, Oh, it connects back to Plan B Press. So lots of information on there. You know how amazing it is that you've managed to keep this going for 10 years, that any type of literary or artistic venue or enterprise to go for a decade is quite something. How have you done it? Well, how did you do it? I actually thought at one point that maybe I should, after I'd done ten years, like maybe that should be it. I should should end it there. But I'm I actually don't feel like I'm done with the project yet. Um, when I first decided that I was going to to do an online journal, I made a list of writers who I wanted to feature in the journal, and I have not, in any way, come near to getting all of those writers in the journal, and that's what keeps me going with it. I, I really, um, because I uh, try to publish um, in the the features. Um, several poems by each poet really give you a sort of meaty chunk of what their their writing style, what their work is like. That means that, you know, I can't publish hundreds of writers a year. So it it ends up that uh, I usually end up doing maybe 15 writers a year where I do a feature on them, which is too slow. So (laughs) I'm never, ever going to make it through my list. And there are still so many writers I love Kim, um, you mentioned the writers who are no longer with us. In, in As you continue to have readings, can you force or coerce some of the present writers to keep reading some of these earlier poets? Mae Miller, for one, and, you know, I remember her very well. But to lose their voice, it's nice to know their, their poems are there, 
but to hear their voice again would be wonderful. Oh, yeah. Coerce the people. <laughs> um, I have only done one audio issue um, so far, and uh, which was really fun to do, to, to, to get the actual voices. And Grace actually was kind enough to let me use um, some of the uh, tapes that she's done from the poet and the poem. So... Uh, taking some of the the archives from there and and putting it online. Um, You know, I would love to do more of those kinds of special issues. And um, one of the goals that I have for the online journal has always been to um, honor and preserve the history, the literary history of the city. Um, So I have published um, essays, interviews, um, photos, I've reprinted a lot of stuff that I, I want to make sure everyone has easy access to. Um, I think you know something is uh, like giving away copies of a, a writer's book who, whose work I love. Um, you know, having the the opportunity to include people who, uh, you know, many of them are. I, I've only lived in D.C. It's not quite 25 years now, so. Uh, there are many people in the book who I've never met. I never had the opportunity to meet, but um, but their influence is still felt, and I wanted to make sure that Beltway honors that. So, yeah, that's that's one of the goals. Okay. Well, we want to thank you very much, Kim. Thank you so and much, everyone, for coming. Also, want to thank our readers: Holly Bass, Grace Cavalieri, Tina Derry, Daniel Gutstein, and Meryl Leffler. Um, Thank you all very much for coming and for staying. We do have copies of the anthology here and hope to see you again. Thank you very, very much.